Amen. Well, church, before we get to the reading of God's word, this morning we are coming to, we're returning in our series through Exodus. And we are in chapter 20, and we're going to focus on the first two verses. Now, these opening verses of Exodus 20 uh, serve to introduce a series of sermons that we're going to do concerning the Ten Commandments. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to be able to examine each one of these Ten Commandments one by one. We'll start with the first one next week, and then we'll kind of look to the remainder of them in the new year. But Exodus 20 is one of the most well-known sections in all the Bible, and indeed in all of religious literature, because it contains the Ten Commandments. Not only that, but these ten words, these ten commandments, have influenced numerous law codes throughout world history. Uh, If you go to Washington, D.C., the central sculpted figure on the promenade overlooking uh, the roof of the U.S. Supreme Court building is Moses, seated with the ten commandments in his hands. And these Ten Commandments play a foundational role in the Old Testament, and I would say even the New Testament, and they play a foundational role in society as a whole. Uh, Think about how the Ten Commandments really affects our culture, and even if we think about it, how our nation has even fought over these commandments, Uh, fought to have them displayed in schoolrooms or fought to have them displayed in courthouses Now, as important as they are to world history and shaping society, many people are actually ignorant of the Ten Commandments. I have my doubts whether the people who are fighting for the Ten Commandments to be displayed in schools or in courthouses even know or can even name all Ten Commandments. They might be fighting for it, but they don't know what's in them. So this morning, before we get to our passage, I want to ask some of you right now, do you know the Ten Commandments? I know, pop quiz, right? Uh, this, is, this is what happens. Uh, if, you don't, if you missed prayer meeting this morning, we kind of went over them. But with every head bowed, every Bible closed, how many of the Ten Commandments do you know? I'm going to give you some time to think about it. How many of the Ten Commandments can you list? And not only that, list them in order. Because the order does matter. Uh, I'll give you some time to think about it right now. And just for you straight-A students, just letting you know that if you miss one, you're already at an A-. minus. Think about it. How many of them do you really know? Probably fumbling around. Don't worry. There's not 20 of them. You you can do them all on on your hands. Now, this isn't meant to guilt you. Most of us are lucky if we can name five out of the ten. And so it is good for us to study these ten commandments. So, now, you may open your Bibles. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one of those Black Pew Bibles in front of you or underneath you and turn to page 61. We're actually focusing on the first two verses, but I'm going to read from Exodus 20 all the way down to, from verse 1 to verse 17. 
Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 20, listen to these words. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Next week, again, we'll get a chance to look at the first commandment and dive into the rest of these commandments, Lord willing, in the new year. But this morning, my goal is simply to lay down some groundwork when it comes to understanding and uh, following and studying these Ten Commandments. Because when we think about the Ten Commandments, we can be very, like, suspicious about it. Uh, we live in a day and time when the law is regarded as something impersonal or maybe tyrannical, uh, restrictive, threatening, unhelpful, right? Even as Christians, we might balk at studying the law. And so this morning, I want us to ask three questions Three questions about the law. And hopefully this will kind of whet your appetite for these Ten Commandments that you might delight in, actually in God's law. Now, in the story of Exodus, in, when we get to chapter 20, the law comes and it kind of takes us a little bit off guard. Uh, you'll recall that thus far in Exodus, Israel has been rescued from Egyptian uh, slavery Moses, along with millions of former slaves, have trekked through the wilderness with everything that they owned on their backs. They've been hungry. They've been thirsty. They've been harassed and attacked along the way. They finally set up camp at the base of Mount Sinai, the, pra- the place of worship where God promised he would deliver them. God comes down as we saw almost a month ago, with lightning and thunder and clouds and glory. 
And then God says, I'm going to give you rules. And you would expect a little bit of pushback, right? Maybe Moses here would push back a little bit and say, Lord, really, this is what you're going to do right now? I thought that this is the part where you're going to bless us. Uh, these folks have had a long journey, Lord. Uh, they've, you know, they've had a hard life. What they need is rest. Couldn't you cut them some slack? How will these rules help? Don't you think it's unfair to saddle them with a bunch of laws right now when they've just tasted freedom? And so the first question we should ask is this. Who is it for? Who is it for? Who are these commandments for? And the answer is for the people of God. For the people of God. Look at what verse 2 says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now it is almost impossible for me to overstate the importance that verse 2 comes before verse 3, where the commandments come. The order matters. God says to Israel, I've rescued you already. I've redeemed you already. I am what? Your Lord. And you are my people. Now here are my household rules. God isn't saying the Ten Commandments. Obey them. Here they are. Now if you obey them, I'm going to check back with you in five years or so. And if you obey them, then you're going to get out of Egypt. That's not what's happening here. That's how some people think about God and about Christianity. Ask people around the Bay Area, what will it take for them to end up in heaven? They'll likely say, if God exists, he probably has some rules and guidelines. And if we get those rules and guidelines right, then he'll let us in. Um, He'll save us. He'll probably grade on curve. That's what most people would think. In other words, keep the rules and you get the relationship. But that's not what happens here in Exodus. God does not choose Israel because of all their accomplishments, but despite them. Israel was saved by virtue of God's mercy and by virtue of God's grace. God said, I hear your cry and I save you because I love you. And when you are saved, free and forgiven, when you have crossed through the Red Sea and all of Egypt is behind you, all that life is in your rearview mirror, there is a new way to live and it's these laws. The Old Testament never teaches salvation by works. It isn't, Oh, the Old Testament, it's salvation by works. And now New Testament, salvation by grace. No, it has always been by faith. Whether that is Abraham, Moses, David, salvation is not the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. So who are these commandments for? Therefore, delivered, redeemed, and saved people brought out of slavery. Now, some of you might say, well, that's really good um, for Israel, right? The Ten Commandments were for them. 
they were for that time, the dusty, dreary days in the Old Testament when God was scary. They are no longer relevant for me now. They're not binding. They're not helpful. After all, I know my theology. Jesus fulfilled the law. So, you know, if you like them so much, Pastor Steve, let's call the Ten Commandments the Ten Commandments, you know. It's fine for thee, but not for me. There's a lot that can be said in response here. But very briefly, let me just say that though we are saved by grace through faith alone, we know that works must accompany genuine faith. Works must accompany genuine faith. Jesus said, if you love me, what? I tell this to my kids sometimes. If you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments. You'll obey my commandments. The Apostle John says in 1 John 5, by this we know that we love the children of God, that when we love God and obey his commandments, 1 John 5. Which commandments then are we to obey? Well, certainly the Ten Commandments. Each one of the Ten Commandments is restated and applied in the New Testament in some form or fashion. And in fact, the Ten Commandments are often named together in the New Testament. In Mark 10, 17, in the story of the rich young man, Jesus, uh, he, he, this rich young man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus do? He brings the Ten Commandments, doesn't he? He says, you know the commandments. And he starts listing them out. When the Apostle Paul wants to give a summary of what it means to be a Christian living in obedience to God, he says this in Romans 13, 8 and 9. Listen to this. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's basically restating the Ten Commandments, at least the second half of the table. Let me give you one more. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes this. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And he starts listing out the second table of the law. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, fifth commandment, for murderers, sixth commandment, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, seventh commandment, enslavers, eighth commandment, liars, perjurers, ninth commandment. So you see, over and over again, the Ten Commandments are central to the ethics for the New Testament Christian. And Jesus famously said what in Matthew 22? Here is the summary of the law. Let me sum it up. What? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those two things, those two commandments, what are they? They are the Ten Commandments. Those are the two tables of the law, what some people would call the two tables of the law. First half, the first four kind of commandments are about loving God. And the second six, or the second half, are all about loving your neighbor. So as we go through this series, beloved, we will find that the law is for Christians. We will find it's for those Christians who are in pain, for those Christians who are struggling to trust God's promises. It's for you. It's for me. 
It reveals to us God's will. It drives us to our knees, shows us our sin, and takes us to the cross that we might stay on the path that he has for us. It is a lamp unto our feet. Now, before we move on to our second question, I do want to address some of you who are not Christians this morning because in one sense, the law is also kind of for you. You may not believe that God exists, so you might read those early commandments and be like, eh, I don't know. But think about the second half of those Ten Commandments. Uh, How do you account for the gap between how you know you should live and how you actually live? Do you even see that gap of those second half of the Ten Commandments? One of the ways the law functions is as a mirror. It tells us that we fall short of God's will for our lives. It tells us we're lawbreakers, that we cannot stand before God on our own strength. But this is the good news of Christianity. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, and he lived the law. He embodied the law. He didn't just keep the letter of the law. He kept the spirit of the law. And he didn't just do this to be an example. No. Jesus came to save the lawbreaker. He came to save the likes of me and you. He died upon the cross, and when he did, he took the punishment that lawbreakers deserve the wrath and judgment of God. And when he rose again, he promises new life for all those who trust in him and his finished work. So the question today is not, what will you do with the law? But as a lawbreaker, what will you do with the one who came to save those under the law? What will you do with Jesus? Let's look at our second question this morning. Not simply, who is it for, but where does it lead? Where do these commands lead? Because when we think about the law, some of us think of it like kale. And nobody really likes kale. We know we're supposed to eat it. At least that's what the propaganda tells us at Whole Foods, right? We're supposed to eat it, but we're not going to enjoy it. Most of us think the law of of the law the same way. We don't really perk up when we hear the word law or commandments. Boring, primitive, patriarchal are all charges leveled against the law. Laws are dry and tedious. They take away freedoms we'd rather have. Laws keep us from parking in the most convenient places and require us to take off our shoes at airport security checkpoints. They cramp our style because they say, do not climb this. Don't sit here. Silence your cell phones. No outside food allowed. And the Ten Commandments are so negative. I mean, eight of the Ten Commandments are prohibitive statements, like, don't do this, do not do this. But that is not how the Bible speaks of the law. In fact, over and over again, the Bible tells us to delight in the law. Uh, Turn to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1. In your Bibles, if you have the Black Pew Bible, it's on page 448. Psalm 1 says what? 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in this way of sinners, nor seats in the seat, sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I suspect some of the reasons why we don't love the law is because we don't meditate on it. If we meditated on it, perhaps we would delight in it more. And check out the unbridled enthusiasm in Psalm 119. You don't have to turn there. I'll read some of it to you. We sang some of it this morning. Psalm 119, verse 2 says, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Verse 14, In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 45, I will walk about in freedom. Freedom. For I have sought out your precepts. Verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Joy, freedom, delight. Even Paul in Romans 7 verse 12 says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous. And he says, good. The law is good. Now, how can the psalmist or Paul say this about the law? Because the law is about relationships. The law is about relationship. Turn back to Exodus 20. What does it say in verse 1? God spoke all these words. He speaks them, and he says, I am the Lord your God. God says, I am Yahweh. I am yours. And so I speak directly to you. I mean, the Israelites lived in a time when people were desperate to know what the gods were saying, but not so with Israel. God took the initiative. He chose them. He rescued them, established them as his people, and then told them exactly what that relationship would look like. These Ten Commandments are God's authoritative expression of what it means to love and be righteous. They are his will. It's not Moses' will. It's not some ancient traditions collated together. It's not crowdsourcing on the internet. That's not what these laws are about. It says, God says, when I bring you into my family, here are my household rules. These are the family rules. The Ten Commandments then are, it's a DTR, isn't it? It's defining the relationship between God and his people. Uh, You've probably heard this before. Christianity is not about uh, rules. It's about relationship. Well, Christianity is certainly about relationship, but to say that rules are in opposition to relationship makes no sense. Why? Because rules don't threaten a relationship. They, it enables it. Uh, friendships have certain rules. You want to be my friend, I want to be your friend, but you talk smack behind, about me behind my back, we're not going to be friends. That's an unspoken rule. We know that. You break the relationship when you do that. Marriages have certain rules. You, you pursue porn, you pursue uh, adultery, you break the relationship. And Jen Wilkin writes that rather than seeing the sin of lawlessness as the barrier to a relationship with God, we have now incorrectly grown to regard the law itself as the barrier. The purpose of the law is not to stifle relationships. 
It's to elevate it. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are what? Not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Laws provide the boundaries for the relationship to thrive. That's what the law is for. I mean, what banks are to a river, laws are to a relationship. You take away the banks and the river becomes what? It becomes a swamp. You take away regulations and an athletic competition becomes just a melee, it becomes a mess. And so God speaks. He takes away the guesswork. There is no wondering what's going to make him happy or what's going to make him sad or angry. It's all clear up front, and that is freeing. And one more thing. It is because God's people are free that the laws are phrased negatively with prohibitions. Think about that, okay? Uh, When you go to the zoo, there are a few rules posted up, right? They're all phrased negatively. Do not yell at the wolves. Do not feed the tigers. Do not tap on the glass. Now, the rules aren't phrased positively. It doesn't say, you must go to the safari section. And then when you get to the safari section, you must take the gondola. And then when you take the gondola, you must see the bears. If you start going to the zoo and it starts telling you, giving a list of what you must do, that's a totalitarian dictatorship, isn't it? But God's rules are gracious and freeing. So church, let us meditate on the law. Let us delight in it. It is not a barrier to joy. It is not a ladder that we must climb up to get joy. No, it helps us to stay on the path of joy. That's what it is. It revives us, as it says in Psalm 19, because it causes us to rise in our affections for God. The Spirit brings conviction according to His law, and it moves the Christian to want to draw near to God by doing His will. It strengthens us so that we might rely upon His grace to please Him. Titus 2 talks about the grace of God appearing for the salvation of all people, and it trains us to live self-controlled lives. And it says, we have been redeemed from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There is the zealousness, a desire to keep God's law for God's people. That's what happens when you, when you are saved by grace. So let us delight in God's law because he has called us into a relationship with him. All right, we must keep going. Who are these commandments for? God's people. Where do these commandments lead? The answer is delight and joy within a walk with God. And third, our last question what is it for? What is it for? What are these commandments for, ultimately? Uh, to answer that question, we have to understand that all of God's law reflects God himself. It, it reflects who he is. Uh, the way that the commandments begin in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, he says, I am Yahweh. I am this person And these laws that are about to come are going to reflect what I love and desire. 
It tells something about his honor. It shows something about his worth and his majesty. It speaks to what matters to him. Uh, For example, when I tell my children, don't leave a mess in the living room, or don't take long showers, it tells them something about their father, doesn't it? It tells them he's kind of like a neat, kind of tidy kind of guy. And two, it tells them that he's kind of cheap, and so don't, don't waste so much water, right? But when God's people keep God's law, it, is, it testifies, it is a display to the nations what God is like. You see, back in chapter 19, God told his people that they were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, by the way that they live, God's people reflect God's character to a watching world. Nations are supposed to kind of peek over the hedges of Israel. They're supposed to look over these walls that were there, so to speak, and, and see something there and all the, from the wilderness that these, these nations are in and peek over the hedges and say, it's, it's orderly in there, and it's, and it's righteous in there, and it's happy in there, and it's joyful in there. They are to be drawn in because that is what God is like. Turn with me to one more important passage in your Old Testament, to Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you're looking at those Black Pew Bibles, it's page 148. Page 148, but Deuteronomy chapter 4. You can follow along with me here. Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So what are these commandments for? What are these commandments for? That God's name might be made known. That the, the theme of Exodus. God has made himself known thus far in Exodus in the first 19 chapters. He has done all the work, all the heavy lifting. He has brought uh, the plagues. He's the one that has unilaterally done the work and brought them through the Red Sea. And now he's saying, you are my people. And now you have been given the responsibility to bear my name. You are the means. My people are the means by which my name will be made known. And one of those ways is the way you live. So church, how we live and how we love either magnifies or it mars the name of Christ. 
In 1 Peter 2, it says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Matthew 5 says you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Beloved, God's laws testify to God's goodness. So let us delight in it, meditate on it, day and night, sing of its values to the nations and to all the generations that follow. Let us have a cry in our hearts that says, Speak, O Lord, speak to us. I am ready to hear your word that I might be a witness to all the nations as well. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are not a silent God, that you speak to us in your word, and may we speak and live in such a way that we would delight in what you have to say to us through your word, through your law. And Father, we ask that our lives would be a testimony to the realities of forgiveness, of of the realities of the gospel, that transformation is real and the Holy Spirit is real and, and, and you are real and moving among your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.